for the, it was October 2020, right? Uh, we were still meeting outside, and we got to meet little Russell at the time, and uh, oh, it was so, uh, just, just a joy. Started on Friday, being able to spend time with you, and just being able to break bread. It was just, a, uh, my heart was, I think we were texting later that night, the heart was just full uh, um, being together. But I'm thankful that you're here, and I trust that the, uh, the Lord is going to work in your midst today. Uh, I, I'll be honest with you, since about Thursday, I've been like totally fired up about this message. And uh, I love this series. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, we took a break for the month of uh, December uh, with our Christmas series of Christ Between the Lines. And then, of course, uh, Mike preached on New Year's Day and had like a New Year's flavor. And then last week uh, was uh, my chance for that. And so we're diving back into the Sermon on the Mount and we've entitled it, The Way of Jesus, The Way of Jesus. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter number 5. And uh, those of you that are uh, guests with us or returning guests, thank you uh, for uh, worshiping uh, the Lord with us today. And uh, I know that uh, Pastor Mike felt a little funny whenever he talks about money, right? And uh, we don't make a big deal about it, uh, but uh, we do pray that if uh, the Lord would put it on your heart, obviously this is a, uh, a ministry that everything uh, runs off of the giving of our, uh, giving of our people, and uh, the cost is going up of everything. And uh, so I think I even saw something on my desk of how uh, PG&E bill is uh, going up big time. So uh, not to, that's not in any way to guilt you uh, to give. I think this is probably the first time I've mentioned giving in months. Uh, so I just want to, uh, more so I just want to thank you uh, for your giving. Matthew chapter number five, if you found your place there, verse number 38. Words will be up on the screen there. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite or slap you on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain, give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, Turn not them away. And so this morning, I want to I look at the, the concept of becoming people of peace. And our world, our world desperately needs the individuals in this room to be peacemakers, to go out into this world and to be individuals of peace. Now, there's some of us that are probably these verses maybe are, are, are very known to us. Some of the, probably the most familiar verses in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I was just talking with someone uh, just a few weeks ago about this message and about this text, and they said, oh, have I told you about the time when I got in a fight in sixth grade? And I responded, and I said, ah, actually, no, you haven't told me that story, and that's really not what this text is about. We're familiar with the phrases of turn the other cheek or I'd give the shirt off my back. I mean, we wonder where some of these phrases come from. They come from the Bible, even though uh, secular society uses them. But often, we don't necessarily know what it means to go the extra mile. But what do these statements mean and how do we begin to apply them into our lives? And long before we can ever begin to apply these verses into our lives, we cannot just simply jump into applying these words into our 21st century American lives. Because if you do, and I do, and I try to apply them right off the bat without, hear me, 
building a really, really, really big foundation. You're going to have to let me just to, to plod through some things to build a foundation to where we can understand what Jesus is saying here. So first, we need to do some work to understand his original audience. Who was, who was Jesus speaking to? His original audience would have understood him. And they would, have, they would have known exactly what he meant. So let me give you some cultural background of the audience and the times in which Jesus is speaking into. And for us to do that, we must understand more about the Palestinian culture of that time. Really, there's a lot of, still some similarities in this Palestinian culture. Anthropologists will tell you and suggest that shame and honor were the core social values of the day. Shame and honor. It was the currency of the day, so to speak. It's kind of it's how they dealt with. It was the shame or honor. Now, while Americans, just follow me real quick, Americans will give up honor for money. They will go the shady route often for money. I'm just speaking in generalities. I'm not necessarily saying that as you. Where in this Palestinian culture, their experience is, is that they would give up money to gain honor. Americans typically experience shame when we do not live up to our own expectations. Palestinians, they experience shame when they do not live up to kind of the, the rules and the expectations of their family or community that they're living in. The great American story usually centers around kind of freedom. It centers around the, the breaking free from the family or society pressures and restraints. But for the Palestinians, this story would be viewed as a tragedy, bringing shame and dishonor to both the individual and their family if they broke out of the mold. So it's a, it's a currency, it's a culture that's all about honor and shame. Let me define those for you real quick. Honor is worth. It's value. It's the prestige of a person. Ah, a similar concept for us today would be our reputation. So if, you, if you're valued, then you're given to you often by those around you. What do people think about you? Honor exists only in the eyes of a public who expects things and evaluates individuals accordingly. This honor was not merely for the individual, but for the family or the group that that individual represented. So honor in that system was, was very, very, very valuable. It's the currency. Shame is the loss of worth, the loss of value, and the loss of prestige. So that's what shame would be. You're, you're losing your value. You're, you're losing who you are. It's to be disgraced, to be dishonored, an unfavorable public perception. Shame was a tool that was often used to, in, in this time to control group behavior. They, they, they would use it. It still happens even in our day, but very much so in this biblical Palestinian culture. It was a kind of used to protect the norms. It was there to kind of uh, to, to pressure people so that they wouldn't 
step outside those norms. There was always the threat of shame. Like honor, shame was also shared with the family or group. So as an individual in this, in this biblical Palestinian culture, they were always connected to others. They were connected to their family. They were connected to their community. In America, we don't always necessarily see that. It's more sometimes of, excuse me, of an individualistic way of doing things. So honor, so we got this honor and shame. Honor is both ascribed as well as achieved. So ascribed honor was given at birth based on your family's standing in town. This honor was also ascribed based on your gender. Males were considered more honorable. I'm not saying this is right. I'm just explaining to you what Jesus would have been speaking into. It would have been the culture prior to the the Jesus way, right? Prior to the gospel changing things. So uh, your standing in town would affect your honor. It It would have been ascribed to you. Your gender would have been ascribed value and honor to you. Also, your rank or your order in birth. So the firstborn son would have the greatest honor, the greatest value in that home, and the lastborn daughter would have the least honor and the least value. Now, we, we realize that it's not right, but this is, in a sense, kind of the, the cultural world. But it achieved honor obviously refers to the reputation and fame that they earn. They earn it by merit. And there's a lot of different ways that you could earn this type of honor. You gain recognition for achievement, and you also gain honor. So, for example, you know, uh, whoever, wins the, whoever wins the Super Bowl in you know, a couple weeks, they're going to throw a parade, in a sense, because of their achievement. They've achieved this honor, and then they're going to make a big deal about whatever team that is. And I'm going to be quiet on who I'm rooting for, okay? All right, so let's just move on there. But... So how does this honor and culture impact? Let me continue to build this for you. And then we're going to just go. How does it affect their day-to-day life? This honor and shame system. How would, how would the listener of Christ, who is using these weird examples, at least they're weird to us in 21st century here, um, how, how, would they, um, uh, how would they live their day-to-day? Well, you've got to have an understanding. There was this, there was this honor was a sub-zero game. There was only so much honor to go around. Here's what that sub-zero means. If someone was going to increase in honor, then someone was going to have to decrease in honor. That's what that sub-zero game is. So that's kind of their society. So if I'm going to, to one-up you, you have got to be then shamed. So it's this honor and shame game that was kind of the the, the system that went on. If one person increases, the other must decrease. Therefore, there was a constant push and pull for who gets the limited resources. It's not abundance mentality, scarcity mentality of how they would have lived. So it gives context to the kind of heightening amount of envy and kind of disdain that they had for Jesus, who was being called king of the Jews. 
right? So there was only so much of this honor, only so much of this, uh, of this pride can go around. And so if this one comes in and he's the, he's the king of the Jews, if he's the one that's going to claim all this honor as he, uh, as, he, as he deserves, he's the king of kings and lord of lords, as one of our men prayed earlier today then that means they were going to have to go down. And so there was disdain. There was, there was hatred for Jesus. He was sought from birth to be put to death because of his threat, his threat into this honor system. So this shame and honor is the context in which Jesus is speaking into. Honor is highly valued, but it's a limited resource in their minds. Therefore, people are competing for honor, and they're trying to avoid shame. So that background, my friend, is very, very important. It's needed to understand how this original audience would have heard Jesus' words. Without understanding this shame culture, and I hope I laid it out plainly enough for you so that that's kind of in the background of your mind as we go forward, then uh, we're going to miss completely what Jesus is teaching. And so when looking at our passage, we can see that just like in previous weeks and uh, when we were still in our series before Christmas, Jesus, he's going to continue in the same teaching pattern. He's going to start with the, the traditional command that they knew, that they had begun to kind of articulate. And then he's going to kind of pull the wool back and say, this is actually what it means. And so let's see it here in verse number 38. You have heard... You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. When offended, our, our human bent is not justice in the court of law, but it's retaliation. It's, you know, I gotta, I've got I've to make this thing right. We've got uh, to escalate things. I had a boss when I was in college. I was working, uh, one particular job was working at Men's Warehouse. And I had a super fun, awesome boss. His name was Robert. And Robert, Robert had this rule when it came to kind of pranking people. And he says, you get one shot at, at, at pranking us. And then he said, I'm going to repay you so bad that you're never going to want to prank me again. So it was kind of a, a punishment and a deterrent. And so it's like, hey, you get one shot to do this. And the reality is is sometimes we go so overboard in the reaction or our reaction based on what has happened to us. Jonathan Pennington wrote in his article, Vigilantism, which is an analysis of establishment violence. He said this, the rule of Lex Talonius was designed to prevent two wrongs. In other words, where this rule is that, that the punishment should meet the, uh, the, um, the, the, the accusation. So it says this rule to prevent two wrongs. Severe retribution that did not fit the crime and self-appointed vigilant action. It is all too easy for revenge to quickly get out of hand, for the one or ones seeking justice to be controlled by passions and for well-intentioned responses to blame violent reaction, to become violent reactions that often end up doing more damage than the original crime and spiraling into more violence and instability. This is why the Lex Talonius exists and why it continues to be a part of our own justice system here in the West. So Jesus, hear me, Jesus is not doing away with a command and a call for justice. 
the law of retaliation and an eye for an eye, it's still legitimate in a kind of civil legislation. The civil, all civil societies must have laws and they must have just laws and punishments for those who break the laws. So it's an important, it's, it's an important part of love for a society to have laws and for that society to have punishment for when those laws are broken. It's essential for community. It's essential for love to fully go forward. But Jesus is making a transition here. He's saying, this is what you've always known. This is how you have used this law. But now this is where I want you to go, Jesus is saying. Jesus is about to kind of mess with their understanding of the way of life. And I need you this morning to stick with me. I need you, I need you to hear me out early on. Because if you don't, and, and you start making, making thoughts in your mind, of like, oh, no way, there's just no way this is about, you're going to miss the amazing truths that Jesus has for us in this text. Let's go on to verse number 39. So you've heard this, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whoso shall smite, slaps thee on thy right cheek, turn it to him to the other also. Now you got to hear me out on this whole point. Don't, don't, don't cut me off, please. Here's what it's saying. In other words, resist not the evil one. Resist in the Greek sense of the word meant to set oneself against to set yourself against that person. So the one who is evil, okay, or someone who is unjustly attacking, Jesus says we are not to set ourselves against someone who unjustly attacks. Now again, hear me out. Don't form an opinion yet. We do not oppose. We do not seek to get even. We do not try to pay back. Often the word is used referring to the law. And in that case, it means to take to court. Do not take to court. Remember, you've got to hear me out. You still with me? Think back to our opening. Honor and shame. Honor and shame. Another way to view what Jesus is saying, he's telling his disciples to stop playing honor games. In Jesus' day, people were applying an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth to retaliate against minor offenses and simple insults. This is a call for us to use the principle only as it was intended, not for everyday retaliation. If someone needs to go to court, go to court. If something is huge, absolutely, it needs to go to the court of law. Love has laws and punishment for those laws. That's the only way a society can fully run. Jesus here, he's dealing with the heart of the law, not the letter of it. So absolutely, if something egregious is going on, we're simply talking about the honor and shame system. And once I lay out what these words mean, I think you're going to see what I'm saying is true. Going all the way back to the Beatitudes, Jesus is telling his followers, his disciples, that you find your honor in me. Blessed are the, and you fill in the blank. It's, it's in Christ. So since our honor is found in Jesus, you don't need to find honor from those around you. 
Can I put it another way? Freedom from the game. You're free from the game of this sub-zero culture that Jesus is speaking into that if I get honor, then you are going to be dishonored. You are going to shame. You're freed from that game. So much freedom that you don't have to fight for your own honor anymore. There's no need to retaliate when shamed. Jesus is going to teach the application of his teaching of verses 37 and 38, I believe, 38, 39, with four scenarios. And these scenarios have got to be in kind of a cultural application or it's not going to make sense. Okay, so when, when something is done unto us in this fashion, in this cultural context, he gives us four scenarios to kind of give legs to what he has just said. You know, the whole eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's saying, actually, when you are offended, when your honor is being, you know, uh, pressed against, you're actually not to set yourself against that evil person. You're not supposed to, it, it's, you, you don't validate me. I, I, I don't need honor from you. So these are four examples of what many have called the non-retaliatory righteousness. In each of these four scenarios, someone is being publicly shamed and uh, they're being dishonored in front of others. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples a new way of responding. You don't have to do the eye for an eye. You don't have to do a a, a tooth for a tooth. Freedom from having to kind of self-defend yourself from trying to prove oneself from having to earn your place in society, becoming people of peace. Rather than always having to win, rather than always having to be, ah, Siri. I even have it turned off. I don't know why it does that. But these are real-life examples of how the disciples should apply this teaching. Not so much for us. Oh, there's going to be application, but these, like, real-life Uh, stories here, it's not so much for us, but we can, based off these examples, we're going to be able to kind of filter this into our own situations, and I'm going to give you a lot of different illustrations of that to try to help you. We should be able to kind of recreate this practice in our life, and so I'm going to just kind of use modern language for these points. Let me give you point number one. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn your head so they can slap the other cheek. Hmm. The right cheek. Blake, can you come on up here real quick? Oh, you all are. This is a going online. Trust me. I've, you can ask me if I've ever hit him. Never one time. So, it's his right cheek to be slapped. Okay? So, for someone to be slapped in their right cheek here by someone, it's going to have to be a backhand or it's going to have to be with a left hand. Would you agree with that? Right? So if, if it was his left cheek, I, you know, I could slap him with my right hand. Okay? So if it's going to be his right side is being slapped, being smit, like slapped, right? It's either going to have to be a left-handed one, back, excuse me, it's going to have to be a backhanded with my right hand, or it's going to have to be a left-handed slap. All right, good job. Let's give him a round of applause. Feed you lunch later. So, this is, so when we read the word smite or slap, the first thing we think about is maybe assault 
or abuse. <laughs> Again, in our culture, rightfully so. Or maybe any children that kind of grew up in Sunday school, maybe the Sunday school teacher will go to this text and say, see, you shouldn't fight. If someone hits you, you should turn the other cheek and you shouldn't fight. And that's why someone was trying to tell me about their sixth grade fight. And that's not what this text is saying. The physical assault is not the big issue in this scenario. And before I go any further, let me be very, very clear. This verse in no way is talking about someone trapped in some abusive situation. Jesus is not saying that you ought to just stay in that. No, 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 no. If you're in a situation like that, we need to let the authorities know, talk to a leader, or talk to myself. That's not what Jesus is saying here. So let's ask the question, what is Jesus talking about in this? So if it's not this abusive situation that some of you all were thinking when I brought him up here, right? Uh, It's not that. Remember the culture. An unmerited slap in the face was regarded as an expression of hate or an expression, an insult. The insult is even more important than the physical pain. And again, Jesus clearly mentions that it's his right cheek. So either backhanded or with the left hand. And so either way, it's highly offensive. It's insulting. Backhanded slaps were reserved for those considered beneath you. Beneath you. It would be, uh, it it was a way to kind of assert dominance. It was a way to assert honor. I am the honorable one. You are below me. You are shaming them. You're beneath me. If it implies the left hand, and we don't know exactly what Jesus was teaching here. He just says, if you're slapped on the right, if you're slapped on the right cheek, then turn the other one. So it's either a backhanded slap, which is, again, this honor-shame type of system, or it's the left hand. Oh, and that, too, would be extremely shameful. See, a person's left hand was considered unclean. It was considered shameful because it was primarily used when you're going to the restroom. Okay, we'll leave it at that, right? You would use your left hand. Dirty, unclean. So the insult is more pronounced because the slap is with an unclean hand and a slap to the face is a part of the face which is deemed as, you know, the image image bearer of God. It's the most valuable thing of you. And that's why I hated not being able to see your face for some of those months, right? So Jesus is not talking about what to do when someone attacks your body. If that's happening, get the legal, get involved, 100%. That's why I told you you had to hear me out. He's talking about when someone attacks your honor. The big question is, what do you do when you're dishonored? When you're insulted? How do you respond when your humanity, your God-given dignity is taken away from you? And so let's begin to ask the question, why turn the other cheek? Why turn the other cheek? Well, there's two typical responses to an attack on your honor. The first one would be to strike back, to retaliate in an effort to kind of regain your own honor. Remember, that sub-zero context that he's speaking into. So if you're gonna take mine, I gotta now shame you so I can gain mine back. So there's this kind of, I've gotta retaliate. And then the other response would simply be to cower in shame. So Jesus' instructions are different. By offering the other cheek, you are going to be doing the unexpected. Some have called it this nonviolent resistance that is neither retaliation nor is it cowardice. To show with courage and creativity that you're not just a powerless victim of their insults, but you willingly stand ready for another attack. 
By turning the other cheek, the disciples can proclaim that they have quit the honor game. They can proclaim that no man can shame me. No man can take my honor because my honor comes from someone greater than you. And so please do not mishear me again this morning. I am not talking about physical altercations here, and nor is Jesus really. Jesus is talking about this honor game. This backhanded slap, of course, is physical, but it says it's I am above you, you are below me, or I'm going to use something that's unclean and filthy to shame you. And he's trying to teach his followers. He's trying to teach his, the disciples, hey, let's be different. Let's be different. Let's just offer the other cheek, meaning you, you, whatever you got to say about it, it doesn't matter. You, 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 can't, you can't dishonor me because I get all my honor in Christ. There's a greater honor system in him. Well, let's go on to the next analogy here. We'll, we'll move quicker now. If someone is suing you for your shirt, let him have your cloak as well. Hey, let me give him the shirt off my back. That's kind of what we would say. So if they're suing you for your shirt, let him have your cloak as well. Well, what is Jesus, what's he talking about? In this scenario, a man is being unjustly sued for his coat, probably before a gathering of elders at the gate. Uh, whenever you kind of read about like kind of at the gate, it's kind of like their, uh, th- their legal system. Like even when it said that um, Lot was kind of a keeper of the, it was like, it, it, it's, a, it's a thing of prominence. And so most likely there's some form of a lawsuit with there. It's another honor challenge, shaming someone by taking their shirt. There were two major articles of clothing worn at this time, the tunic or shirt that was worn directly against the body. And it was kind of a, a loose fitting, uh, kind of, and then there was a loose fitting like cloak or maybe what we would call a coat today. So I, I have kind of been wearing my coat in the winter, but this would be my, my shirt, this would be my cloak. This would be, you know, so that's kind of uh, what it is. So you've got the two different elements there. A tunic or a shirt um, was, uh, was very important as well as this cloak. A cloak was used as a blanket sometimes for the poor And according to Deuteronomy 24, it was forbidden to leave a poor person naked or without a cloak. So, why give him your cloak as well? Why give him your cloak as well? Well, the typical response when someone wants to unjustly take your possessions is to fight for honor. It's to protect your stuff. Or in shame, you're going to kind of hand over your shirt. Jesus says, someone demands your shirt, give him your coat as well. By giving your cloak as well, the disciples are again able to, be, to do the unexpected, to win by losing, to show with courage and creativity that they're not just this powerless victim of exploitation, but they're willing to give more than is asked of them. By giving their cloak as well, they're proclaiming, I don't play your honor game. I want you to be different, Jesus is saying. I want you to be agents of peace. You don't always have to win. Are we literally talking about your shirt and your coat in real life? No, but we're talking about this system that is going on, that, that, that when, when someone is maybe kind of taking advantage of you a little bit, you just, oh, just continue, it's fine. I don't have to win. 
I don't have to have this, you know, sub-zero level of, of just because why? Because someone greater than you, whoever that individual is, has given me my honor. We're going somewhere. Thanks for letting me continue to build this out. Let's go to the third one. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Have you ever heard, hey, let's go the extra mile? That's from the Bible, right? So if anyone forces you to go one mile, he says, you've heard this. You go one mile, I'm telling you to go two miles. What's Jesus talking about? What's he talking about? Well, the people of Israel, they were under Roman occupation. So that, that meant they had to submit to Roman law. That meant they had to submit to Roman rule and exploitation. They were a defeated people living in submission to their enemies. They literally lived as powerless individuals. If you ever want to know what that looks like, watch The Chosen. There's a shameless plug for an awesome TV show, The Chosen. You'll see it. They just live powerlessly, in a sense, under this, under this oppression. And one of the ways that Romans would take advantage of the Jewish people was for the Roman soldiers to require them to carry their, 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 their stuff, with their bags or whatever it was, to go a mile. It was hard. It was reproach. It was shameful. They were oppressed. They were an occupied country. So they would say, hey, I want you to carry that for up to a mile. And Jesus says, I want you to go two. Again, why two? Why the extra mile? The typical response when someone wants to exploit you is to fight for power with the resistance and rebellion, as the zealots were doing during this time. Or the shameful and powerlessly just comply, okay, Jesus instructs what people often call the third way, the nonviolent resistance. It's non-retaliation, nor is it cowardice. It's to take the bags and start walking, but just keep walking. To show with courage and creativity that you're not just a victim of their oppression, but you're willingly to give of your time and of your strength beyond what they're asking for. By going the extra mile, you, pro you proclaim, I do not play this honor game. Fourth one here. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Hmm. Give to the one that begs from you. And to not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So what is Jesus talking about here? Let's continue to ask these questions. Well, in this scenario, the beggar and the borrower are placed in the same category. As the insulter, psh, the exploiter, and the oppressor. So based on the context, this is example number four. And the con these examples were to flesh out, do not resist the evil, right? Don't set yourself against that evil that's being done. Don't set yourself against the person that is bringing shame upon you by trying to, uh, trying to insult you. Don't set yourself against the person that's trying to exploit you. But hey, hey, I want, your, I want your jacket too. Hey, give me a little bit more. He's saying, don't set yourself against the person that's trying to oppress you, maybe giving you more work than you're getting paid for, those types of things. And so he's like, don't set yourself against that. Then in the same litany, you have this borrower or this beggar. I believe this means that Jesus is referring to a specific type of beggar a specific type of borrower, not just someone who's poor, but someone who has lost honor. 
to the dishonored, the shameful, the shameful who have been ostracized and the cut off from both his community and his family. Not just the poor. That's not what we're necessarily talking about because Jesus often would talk about that. I believe this is something different, but to those that have been exiled, those that have been living in shame. Jerome Nayray says in his book, Honor the Dishonored, the cultural edge of Jesus' Beatitudes. Here's what he says. Those disheartened, Heritage, excuse me, or banned as suffering a frightful social stigma in the village, as disobedient and rebellious sons, they clearly lose honor and so become shameful, at least in the eyes of their neighbors, that they would not be the objects of compassion or sympathy. So it's not just the, the, the person that's poor, it's that there's shame on them somehow. They got what they deserved because they did not suffer misfortune. They experience shame from family and kin for their rebellion against family tradition. Think about the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son, he rejected his father, wastes his inheritance. Now he's in complete destitute, right? He's eaten with the, he's eaten with the pigs. What's he left to do? Beg and borrow. No honorable person would associate or help the dishonorable. In this culture, again, where Jesus is speaking into, it's a risk of your, of your honor. You, if you get too close, you're going to be shamed. And it's this sub-zero culture where if you, if you get shamed, then you're going to lose some of that honor. There's, this is where the conflict is. So a dishonorable person knows that they will bring dishonor. They've lost the right to ask for help. They must reap their just rewards. By asking for money, the beggar is openly attacking the person's honor. So why give to the one who begs? Simply put, they give to the one who begs because their honor comes from God, not from anyone else. Now, before I move on to the personal application, we're almost, we're getting there. We're, we're kind of landing here. We started late. I preached super short last week, so we're still good, right? Appreciate it, kind of. Maybe you're hungry. All right. So I want to make sure that we fully understand what Jesus is saying here. A peaceful response starts with do not retaliate. All right, do not retaliate. Do not fight evil with evil. Quit the honor game. Okay, so that's, that's where Jesus is starting here. Secondly, a peaceful response is remember your God-given honor. You do not need the honor of men if you have the honor of God. Oh, it's nice to be honored by men. But man, if you don't require it, you're free to just live and love radically, whether you get it in return or not. I promise you that is freeing for you and for me. Remember that your God-given honor. Then thirdly, to respond with courage and creativity. Oh, let's turn the other cheek. Oh, no, I'll, here, I'll give you my cloak. It's, it's, it's no big deal. I'll go the second mile with you. Oh, you, you're asking? I have the means to help? Here you go. I'll help you. So how does this all apply to us? That's what you've been really waiting for. You let me build a super huge porch, and now we're kind of on the back patio getting ready to be done. What do you do when someone tries to rob you of your honor? When someone tries to treat you as if you are less than them and make you feel like you're less than them. Our culture is not rooted in honor and shame like the Palestinian culture, but most of us do care about our reputations. We do take offense to public insult. 
We do not like to be mistreated. Of course that's the case. Our instinct will always be to fight evil with evil. That's just kind of what we want to do on the inside. We desire to retaliate. It looks different because some of us are prone to fight and others are kind of prone to flight. In other words, we desire this or we rage out and some rage in. So here's some potential ways that we might be prone to retaliate. We retaliate with an eye for an eye or an insult for an insult. Mistreatment for mistreatment. Well, you mistreated me, so I'm going to mistreat you. Do you know how regular that is in spousal relationships? Well, you did this, so I'm going to do that. And there's the positive and there's the plus, and the negative side of that as well, right? And so attack back and humiliate. That's sometimes what we do. Retaliate with gossip and slander. We speak negatively about them behind their backs. We're trying to kind of get other people offended as well so you can kind of garner your support. Oh, man, that sometimes happens. That can happen even also in emails. Retaliate with unresolved bitterness. Stuff it down and hold it against them. Rage inwardly. I'm oh, mad. Retaliate with abandonment. Cut off relationships. Cancel culture. You're dead to me. Right? That's just kind of the world we live in. I'm done with you. So how do we turn the other cheek? How do we give our tunic? How do we give our coat as well? How do we go the extra mile? How do we give to the one who begs? How do we respond with creativity and courage when we turn the other cheek, give away our cloak, or keep walking? We are undermining the offender's power over us by acting with a willing attitude. Additionally, we're not allowing the burden of vengeance or bitterness to rule us. Above all, we're displaying the power of God and work in us to be patient, even to the unjust. So let me give you some everyday scenarios, and then I'm going to tie it to Christ, and we'll be done. When insulted or offended in conversation with church people, did you hear that gulp? Like, you ever get offended by church people? You ever get insulted by you know, other, uh, other believers, right? Do you realize that we were just, we've just, we just went through like a very polarizing, you know, couple months of a kind of a political season? And the odds are that over the course of those months leading up to the election, someone offended you with something that they said. No doubt. I wouldn't be surprised if you, someone's political opinion wasn't offensive what are you going to do? How are you going to turn the cheek? One of the implications of turning the other cheek is that you are going to hear me. You're going to stay connected with that person. You're going to stay in life. You're going to stay in community. You're going to still be vulnerable. You're not, going to, you're, you're not going to leave that conversation. You're not going to leave that relationship because somehow they think differently than you or believe differently. You know, there are so many people in my life that I'm so thankful that, that they, they just allow me sometimes to think differently and they're loving and they're gracious and they're compassionate and they're even in this room and I love it. But listen, we ought to stay engaged because our honor comes from God and we're able to remain in a relationship when insulted, when we're mistreated or whether we are attacked. How about when we're taken advantage of by your boss? 
Many of you, and you, you have a boss, and uh, maybe you have some type of contentious relationship with your boss. I'm not sure. But it, um, she might require you to work overtime without pay, uh, expect you to do things that you're, are not in your job description. So take credit for your success. Increase your responsibilities and or title without increasing your compensation. This doesn't mean that you should never uh, helpfully address the issues. It doesn't mean you should never talk about them, but you can respond creatively and without retaliation. When interacting with condescending family member, maybe you have parents that wished you took a different uh, path. Maybe you have an aunt who implies, you know, something must be wrong with you if you're still single. Like, what, like the people that the stuff things people say, it hurts. Right? Whether it's, a, uh, whether it's an uncle or a cousin, you know, they kind of get these backhanded compliments. Or when someone embarrasses you, when you have a passive-aggressive neighbor, or maybe an all-out attack on social media. Peace. Becoming people of peace. So let me encourage you to remember the way of the cross. The way of Jesus. This literally is the way of Jesus. What Jesus is asking of us is so difficult. And at times it feels impossible. But remembering the way of Jesus and how he responded in insult, attack, and dishonor will greatly help us going forward in this call. For our sake, Jesus was mocked and abused. He was slapped, beaten, spit upon. He was forced to carry his own cross. And he didn't resist. For our sake, he was ripped of his clothing. He was left naked, shameful, hanging on a cross. Crucifixion is a form of punishment that was chosen for the execution for the Romans because of its pain and because of its shame. He did not resist. He did not oppose. He did not defend. He did not even get even. For our sake, he was exploited. And he was oppressed. His own disciple betrayed him. His other disciples abandoned him. The Jewish leaders rejected him. And the people called for him to be crucified. We don't want Barabbas. We want Jesus. We don't want Barabbas to, to go. We want Jesus to go. So give us Barabbas. He died a shameful death. He did not resist. He did not oppose. He did not defend. He did not get even. Nor was he crowned like we think he ought to have been. But he was crowned with shame, a crown of thorns. Oh, he deserves so much more. He deserves so much honor. He had all he needed in the Father's honor. My friends, instead, he went the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth mile for you and for me. Why? So that we can stand in his honor. So we can stand in that power. That we don't have to give power to another individual over us in this way. Jesus said in John 10, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. Everything I just described wasn't man doing it, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Jesus gave everything, all he had, all of himself. His act of love was to rescue and redeem a people unto himself, a people to follow his way. And so when we look at this text, and sometimes we think we know what it means, 
It actually means way more than we ever thought it meant. It means to be men and women of peace. That when we're insulted, we're taken advantage of, when we're asked of things, that we just say, my honor is connected to Christ. It's not an honor-shame game. We're freed from it in him. This is the way of Jesus. It's a hard call. It's, it's, it's hard. But Jesus walked this path for us. And in him, we're given this honor so that we can live radically in a society around us. Every head bowed, every eye closed, please.